If you have your Bibles, turn to two different places. The first is Psalm 98, which we will read at the end of the sermon, and then Matthew 28, which we will read earlier in the sermon. As modern people, we are not altogether comfortable with the notion of authority. If there is such a thing as legitimate authority, where does that legitimacy come from? We are the people of God, and we believe in the revelation of God in both creation and scripture. But we're not altogether sure about the question of authority, in part because of our experiences, but also because we know that the world is not as it should be. But as I've said last week, I'll review a bit today, this is not where the conversation is to begin. Any conversation that we have on whatever topic, moral, economic, political, artistic, whatever, far too often we begin with a messed up situation rather than saying, okay, what was originally intended? What was it that God intended when he created the world? Okay, now we know how it's messed up. And as we seek to reclaim things, We have a pattern back in creation to guide us. But if, in fact, we don't think that way, if we begin in the fall, then there is no pattern to go back to. And so any idea of reclamation, of making things right, is pretty much based on whatever we think it should be. That we come up with a pattern, we come up with a solution, and and that's sort of the way we think things should be. As Christians, I think we should think in terms of the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, what did God intended, intend as he created things, which, and it was not, as we've seen in the series on creation, that wasn't the end of things, it was the beginning of a project leading to the new creation. But it went off track because of Adam and Eve's sin, it's now been defaced, it's off the tracks. Jesus has come into the world to set things right, to begin the process of redemption, and to lead us to the new creation. If we begin the conversation in the wrong place, then what is to guide us? And what gives us direction? And this is why I'm convinced that there are many good Christians, sincere Christians, whose solutions to things, in fact, mimic the world because they have begun in the fallen world and not in creation. One of the conversations is the issue of authority, which we looked at last week and will continue today. And to help us continue this conversation, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus before his ascension. This is in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You'll notice that there are four alls in these verses. The first is all authority has been given to me, and go to all the nations, And then you could say all things, teach them everything I have commanded you, that is all things. And then always or all the way, I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
I would suggest to you that we like the last all, the all the way. I am with you always to the very end of the age. It recalls what we read in Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, was made to Joshua in Joshua 1.5. And it's been of great comfort to God's people through the centuries. So of the four alls, I think the last one we like. The others we're not so sure about. Because, let's face it, it sounds so imperialistic. Go into all the nations. And, you know, teach them to obey everything that I have told you. And why, do, why should you do this? Because all authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. The idea that we are to tell people that they are to obey everything Jesus commanded really bothers people. And one way that people get around it is they simplify what Jesus taught to the golden rule. Basically, be nice to other people. Failing to take into account the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption... We begin to wonder, I think there are some who do wonder, if the first three alls we're not sure about, the fourth one we begin to wonder about. We wonder, is this someone we want to be with us all the way? Because, let's face it, living in the modern age, people do not envision God. They don't view him as he is presented in Scripture. Many suspect that God is, in fact, morally primitive, even morally inferior to them. Let me give you some examples of this. People say God is intolerant of differences in lifestyles. And people say, I'm very tolerant. Why is God so intolerant? I am more tolerant than God. And the, the conclusion is I am morally superior to God. People find God to be vindictive with eternal punishment, which many people find abhorrent. Why? I would never send anyone to eternal fire. Why does God do this? God seems self-centered and egotistical. He wants people to worship Him. It all seems to be about Him. It's all about His own glory. And then some would say that God seems afraid of the truth. Actually, I think this is true of Christians, but they project it to God, that science is seen as a quest for truth and Christianity is afraid of that quest because of what they might come up with. And so it sounds like God is afraid of the truth. He claims to have an exclusive right to the truth, but his people seem very afraid of science. Because we live in the modern age, we are a part of this culture, we breathe the same air, literally and metaphorically. We may, in fact, harbor some of these very same thoughts. Think about the atonement, which we sang about uh, in different hymns, Hallelujah, what a Savior, spoke of His blood. Um, some people think that just sounds so barbaric, so uncivilized. The idea that one should have to die for his sins or for the sins of others, it seems unjust, nonsensical. And there are some, and admittedly it's a fringe group, there are some who accuse God of child abuse because God the Father sent God the Son to be put to death. The bottom line is people ask, who does God think that he is? To limit my freedom, to tell me what to do, to determine what is right or wrong. 
And so some people, in fact, see God as immoral and, if nothing else, quite petty. Why does he care about all these little things? This comes into play with the the idea of God's wrath. I'll talk about that in a minute, particularly when people speak of God's love. By the way, when people speak of God's love, I think they mean whatever it is they want it to mean. That God loves me and would let me do whatever I want to do. He would not try to somehow hold me back. He would let me do, because he loves me, he would give me everything I want and let me do anything that I want. And so in many ways, the love of God is used to negate the commands of God, because God would never... You know, he would never say, I'm the boss of you, here's what you're supposed to do. If God loves me, he would let me do what I want. There are people, and I don't hear as much about these people as I did back in the 80s and 90s, I'm sure they're still around, called process theology. They argue that God is in process, that he's learning how to deal with us. So, In the Old Testament, God is always losing his temper. He's being angry. He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He puts a mark on Cain because he kills Abel. He destroys the earth with the flood. He scatters mankind at the Tower of Babel. By the way, they don't believe any of these to be historically true. But they say the presentation of God is of someone who really has anger management issues. And then you have what we have talked about here is, is difficult, and that's God commanding Israel to go out and wipe out nations. That seems like someone who really needs to get his anger under control. But in the New Testament, they would argue God has turned the corner, and now God is a God of love. He's still learning what it means, and, the, and therefore he is allowing us to explore the full expression of who we are as human beings. To be fair, this is a simplistic, an overly simplistic presentation of process theology. But I think in many ways it reflects the way that people think today in the church and perhaps even in our own hearts where we look at the Old Testament and just cannot imagine what God was thinking when he gave certain commands. In today's world, I think there at least or there used to be three assumptions. The first is that people are searching for God. They want to find out the truth about God. The second is that they are frustrated in their search for truth. Um, They want to find God, but they are frustrated. And particularly in the postmodern world, it's believed that you can't really know anything with certainty. And so what we find is that people begin to create God in their own image. And then the last thing we find is that people say it's really unfair that God finds us guilty for, or, yeah, finds us guilty for not finding Him. He, he doesn't help us in this search. He could help us, but He doesn't. Um, God seems so unfair. And if we be honest, this in fact may be in the back of our minds as we think about God. But what does Scripture say about things? The problem is not with God. The problem is with humanity. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people would say the problem was that of guilt. The various psychoses that people have is because they have guilt feelings. I think today, as we approach a nihilistic time, people think, no, my life has no meaning. That's the problem. 
And scripture tells us that God has generously acted to resolve this alienation. He has, in fact, sent his son to bridge the gap between humanity and himself. He's revealed the truth in scripture and in his son. The objection then comes up, something I mentioned earlier, and that is God's wrath. In scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, we read of God's anger. And to us, it may sound rather barbaric and primitive. Why is it that people cannot embrace the notion of God's anger? Why do we struggle with the idea of God's anger? I'll give you a couple reasons. The first is, when we think of anger, we think of human anger. And our example, human anger, is a bad example. It's badly motivated, badly acted out. Even oftentimes when we are angry for the right reasons, we might in fact do the wrong thing because we are so angry. Think of the language, at least in English, for anger. Blind rage. Out of control. Beside oneself. Somebody lost it. Or somebody blew up. So if you think of God's anger in these terms, then yeah, then we would really have a problem with when we talk about the wrath of God. With regard to human anger, by the way, the New Testament, I think, is fascinating in this regard, and oftentimes we, we miss it. It does not say that anger is wrong, and it does not say that we are not to be angry. It leaves room for our anger, which, in fact, may be well-motivated and well-acted out. Ephesians 4.26 which, by the way, is taken from Psalm 37, verse 6, in your anger do not sin. In other words, it is possible to be angry and not to sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In James chapter 1, verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He goes on to say, by the way, that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So James doesn't say, don't get angry. Paul doesn't say, don't get angry. But rather, there are limitations. We are not to sin while we are angry. And we are to be slow in our anger. But doesn't this apply to God as well? Does God abide by these same constraints? Well, there are places that seem to contradict this. In Psalm 2... Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Sounds like somebody's losing their temper here. It may seem that this contradicts other passages. I think it doesn't. Um, I would say that we do, not under, we do not fully understand God. But let's move on from there. I think another reason that we really struggle with God's anger is because of the previous generation, the generation before us, uh, who were known as hellfire and brimstone preachers, who whenever they would preach, would preach a lot about hell and about God's angry. And so now people are like, okay, we've had a generation or two of that. We want to now hear about God's love. And, and it's true. We are not to only hear of God's wrath. Um, but it is a part of who he is. The emphasis may in fact be a caricature. We are to present God as he is. And God is love, but God can also be angry. 
we need to be careful that we do not make the mistake of misrepresenting God as being less angry than he is. And we should not make the mistake of representing God as being more angry than he is. So, let me suggest to you some avenues of thought, some things for you to think about with regard to the anger of God. And this is all tied in with God's authority. Do we want God to have, do we want Jesus to have all authority in heaven and on earth when in fact he's marked by wrath and by anger? The first thing, and I think this is critical, and that is that wrath is not an attribute of God. God is not angry by nature. He is not looking for a place to vent his anger. As one person put it, God is not in a bad mood. He is not influenced by his hormones. He does not have sleepless nights. He is not hungry. And he did not have a bad childhood. These are things that can make us angry. People for whom oftentimes anger is, in fact, an attribute, a characteristic. But this is not who God is. God is love and God is holy. God is not wrathful. That is not an attribute. That is not a characteristic of God. An attribute is how God is in his essence. Wrath, on the other hand, is God's response, God's reaction to evil and wickedness. So we could say, if there was no sin, if there was no evil, God would not be angry. But God would still be love and God would still be holy. Because those are his attributes. Those are who he is in and of himself. So if there is no sin, then God would not be angry. If there was no evil, there would be no wrath. This sounds strangely like God is a reactive God. But let me ask you, would a God who does not respond to evil be morally perfect? If in fact God would say, well, whatever you want to do, I don't really care. Would that God be morally perfect? Do we or do we not want God to respond to the evil in the world? Do we want him to take evil things and evil people and evil actions seriously? And how seriously do we want to take it? The answer usually is yes, but then the question is, what is evil? And that is for another series, if you wish. Um, we want, as human beings, we want God to respond to what we perceive to be great evil. If, in fact, you have a number of people who are killed uh, let's say, by a suicide bomber, that children are killed, that if somebody goes into a school and kills a bunch of people, we want God to do something about that. But other things, they don't seem that important. Matters of sexuality, immorality. He seems rather prudish that God is even worried about such things. It seems beneath his dignity. It seems very petty. We know we're not perfect, but we don't think of ourselves as evil. The people around us we know aren't perfect, but we don't think of them as evil. Um, so why, why is God angry? The reaction we desire 
against great evil is God's wrath. That we want. And we want it in a very visible way. We want God to make things right and we want him to do it right now. When we speak of God's wrath, we must do so in connection with his holiness. His holiness is who he is in his essence. As I said, God is love, God is holy, God is not angry. That is not his attribute, that's not his essence. So his anger comes from the attribute of holiness. Because he is holy, then he is in fact offended by anything that is wrong, that is evil, that is sinful. God's wrath, something else for you to think about, is against anything which does not conform to his character. Well, this sounds rather conceited, doesn't it? If it's not like me, then it's wrong. Well, I would say in anyone else it would, in fact, be conceit. What determines if something is morally right or wrong? What is the basis of ethics? I think we have at least three choices, and I'll tell you here at the beginning, the first two are wrong, the third one is right. The first one is that good and evil exist. They are an eternal standard that was there, and this is where we get into trouble, even before God, and God himself must submit to the standard of right and wrong. In other words, there's a law behind God. I think we may think this way until we actually have to sit down and work it through and they're like, oh no, that can't be right because God is the first thing. He's first cause, not some type of universal moral law. The second possibility is that good and evil are only names for what God decides they are. And he could, in fact, change his mind. So, maybe in the Old Testament he says something is wrong and in the New Testament... It's okay. And then good and evil simply becomes arbitrary. God gets to choose what's right and what's wrong. And is this someone we want to have all authority? Mm, I don't think so. The biblical position, the third possibility, is that it is God's character which determines and defines what is good and what is evil. Anything that is contrary to his nature is in fact wrong. It is sinful. It is evil. And God's character does not change. God is love and God is holy and that does not change. We are sinners because we do not conform to God's character, to who he is. So in Romans chapter 1, the famous passage about God's wrath being revealed, says... The, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Godlessness, unrighteousness, that which is contrary to who God is in himself. As human beings, we want to be significant. And as I said earlier, guilt no longer seems to be the dominant question for most people. It's meaning. Does, in fact, my life have meaning? Well, yes. You do. And one of the ways that this is seen is in God's wrath. The fact that God says, this is who I am, and you're made in my image, so you should follow this pattern. And when we do not, God is angry about that. It's because we matter. In the same way that parents may discipline 
their own children, but not other people's children, strangers that you know they don't know, because these kids matter to them. They are, in some sense, made in their image, and so they want to discipline them and to teach them what is right. It is God's wrath that gives us significance. It is his judgment of what we do wrong that tells us that we are important. People want their choices to matter. They want their choices to have significance, and they do. And this is seen in God's judgment and God's wrath. God's attitude toward me is not affected, or it is affected, by whether I do what he tells me to or not whether I choose to be like him in his nature or not. And God's personal reaction to my choice may in fact be anger. So in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Well, does that mean that God's just mad all the time? No, it means that by nature we do not conform to what is holy. We do not conform to God. Is there a conflict between God's anger and God's love? Is God schizophrenic? No, he is not. Remember that God's love is in fact who he is. It is not a reaction. If we were not here, if God had never created the world, God would still have love. He would be love. Read John chapter 17 as Jesus prays to the Father and speaks of the love that they had before the beginning of the world. God is love. He doesn't need us to have someone to love. Okay? He is loving. And because he loves us, and because he is holy, he is angry at evil and he is angry at sin. He doesn't cease to love us. If anything, it is a demonstration of his love. And he does not cease to be holy when he is angry. In fact, it shows that he is a God of holiness. Both God's love and his holiness show that well, they are who he is. And his anger shows that he is a God of love and a God of holiness. By the way, when we stand before God, a judgment, how will we approach him? In other words, what will you say when you get to heaven? Well, some would say it's based on what you've done. It's a merit. The good versus the evil, you'll be put in the scales. Um, no, that's not, that's not the way it works because then no one gets in because the evil that we do certainly outweighs the good that we do. We will be judged based on his character. So when we get to heaven, what will be the basis of things? It will be God's love. We are to rely on his love and his love alone. We are born of water and of the spirit. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed from our sins. As John tells us in his first epistle, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away our sins. 
One of the first Bible verses I memorized was John 3.16. It seemed to be that the way, that's the way it was back in the day. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But there's a next verse, and I sort of wish that we had memorized this as well. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It is because of God's love that Jesus came into the world. He did not come into the world because he was angry. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Here is God's holiness, and here is the world, and they don't look anything alike. Because God is good and perfect and holy, and we are marked by ungodliness. We are marked by godlessness and evil. God's love is seen that Jesus bridges the gap. He comes and he reveals God's love to us. It offers forgiveness freely. And the opportunity to be conformed to the image of God, to his holiness. It is this that shows that we have worth. I think most people would say, Yes, I know I'm valuable because God loves me. It's the love of God that shows that I have worth. I don't think I would disagree with that. But I would argue with you, I would say you need to think that it is God's wrath that also shows that you have meaning. Because if God did not care about you at all, why would he bother to be angry? Why would he bother to be angry? It is this picture of a wrathful God that has caused many in the modern age to reject the idea of God, to reject belief in God at all. This is not a God they want to worship. A God of love, yes. A God who has standards, who gets angry. A God of wrath. They'll pass on that. I hope... Some of what I've said today has been helpful. I would encourage you to think, to reflect on the character of God. (coughs) To realize that our culture thinks of God in in a drastically, dramatically, radically different way than how he is presented in scriptures. Ever since the serpent spoke to Eve, we have wanted to be God. To be like God. That we get to determine what is right and what is wrong. That was the promise, wasn't it? And the notion that God gets to determine what is right or what is wrong, I think, really bothers us. We do not want to submit to that authority. We'll also have you consider that the postponement of God's anger, because God is, in fact, slow to anger, he is long-suffering, might, in fact, cause us to lose sight of his wrath, to see God only as a God of mercy and a God of love, and forget that, no, The mercy is the postponing of judgment. It is not the getting rid of judgment necessarily. In the book of Lamentations, we read, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's the basis of one of the hymns that we sing. Great is thy faithfulness. It is because of his love that we are not consumed. Uh, If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 98. 
follow along and listen as I read this, this amazing psalm. But particularly I want you to think as we get to the last verse in terms of God's wrath. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why does creation, why is creation pictured as singing for joy because the Lord comes to judge the earth? Well, it is a recognition of his authority, that he is the king, he is the Lord, that he is going to make things right. And ultimately, this is not about condemnation, but of judging with equity. And it shows the significance. One of the striking things about the psalm is that even though it mentions Israel, it also mentions the nations, the ends of the earth. Israel was to be the messenger of God's grace to the world to say, listen, God is holy and you are not. And God is angry with you because of this, because of it. But he loves you and in his mercy, he is willing to save you. And it speaks of his salvation throughout this. And creation rejoices. It rejoices because God will judge people and make things right. It's modern people, it's just, that seems so unfair, so unjust, almost barbaric. Why can't God just let us do what we want to do? Except when we get in trouble, then, then we want him to come around. But why can't he just leave us alone? Because we have significance. Because we're made in his image. And therefore, he's not happy. He is angry. There is wrath when we do things that are contrary to his nature. But creation sees that God has authority, and so should we. Even though the culture around us rejects this, we need to stand up and say, God is the Lord. He is the King. And he is the one who is holy. He is the one who loves us. Otherwise, God just becomes Santa Claus. He just becomes someone who, uh, as Bob Dylan put it, an errand boy who satisfies your wandering desires. Because we tend to reject authority, and because God is the ultimate authority, if we're not careful, we reject God. And this is one of the things that makes it so difficult to believe in God in today's world. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, we believe in you. 
We have put our faith in you. We are your children. But we live in a world that tends to reject authority. And it rejects its vision of you as being cruel and mean and petty. And sometimes we get swept along with the current. Help us to see that you are a God of love, a God who is holy. And because of these attributes, you cannot tolerate sin. You cannot tolerate evil. You're not small-minded. It's quite the reverse. We are the ones who are small-minded because we think only certain things are worthy of judgment. Our Father, if we be honest, sometimes we find it difficult to love you. Because you don't act in the way that we think you should. In some ways we are like spoiled children who insist that the parent do what he or she wants. As we have come to worship you today, may your spirit bend our hearts, bend our knees, that we would worship you for who you are. God who is holy, the standard of what is right. And we are sinners. And because of your great love for us, you will not put up forever with our sin, with the godlessness of human societies. By your Spirit, may we think on these things and may it correct our thinking in the areas that need to be corrected. Again, we remember those that aren't with us today, those who will be traveling, that you would give them safety. For those that are sick, that you would raise them up. And now as we leave this place, we pray that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.